Well, as we continue our worship in the Word this morning, let's take a few moments to bow in prayer as we prepare our hearts. Um, Father, we're grateful just to be with your people, uh, to meet during the Sunday gathering, and just be reminded of who you are and why we're here, to worship you. And so, Lord, as we continue our worship in the in your word, we pray that you'd get us out of the way. We pray, Lord, that we would not just be informed by the truth, but transformed by it. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us, and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Dwight Eisenhower once said, war is a terrible thing, but if you want to get into it, make sure you get into it all the way. Now, that's certainly true when it comes to the war against lust. That's certainly true when it comes to our pursuit of purity. This morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to be in the entirety of the chapter. And what we're going to take some time to talk about is prioritizing purity in an impure world. We're going to talk about how it's possible to live a clean life in a dirty world where sexual immorality and sexual temptation is all around us. We're reminded in light of the world we live in, the culture we live in, I'd like to suggest this morning that uh, sexual temptation is more accessible now more than ever. Just consider our cell phones and devices, our TV screens and computer screens, social media and streaming services. So how is it possible to, to pursue purity and fight this war against lust in a world that, where it's, we might find it very difficult? As you make your way there to Proverbs 5, uh, uh, the purpose of Proverbs is stated in chapter 1, verse 2. It's to know wisdom and understanding and in the context of chapter 5 it's to know wisdom and understanding when it comes to our pursuit of purity to our pursuit of living holy lives set apart to the Lord including how we live in an impure world you know as we walk into our text before we dig into it I'd like to suggest that it's important for us to clarify a few terms in Proverbs that at times can overlap and the terms are knowledge understanding and wisdom. Uh, knowledge can be defined as knowing a set of facts, knowing the truth of what God's word has to say. Understanding means um, applying the truths of God's word to our lives. Wisdom, on the other hand, is walking in that instruction. And so actually applying the truths of God's word to our life. And so God's design when it comes to our pursuit of purity or declaring war on lust and going all in and being fully committed, the reason God instructs us on these things is not so that we would go out and listen to what God's word has to say about it and then walk out doing something else, but that we would live victorious lives over the war against lust and pursue purity because that's what God's word provides for us, the wisdom to apply the truths of scripture. After all, the definition of what it means to be a fool or to be foolish means to know what we're supposed to do and, and not do it. And so we, as we walk through our text, my prayer, as we talk about pursuing purity and prioritizing it in our lives, is that as we walk through our text, you along as the word continues to work in our hearts and minds through the work of the spirit, the word in our hearts that that we would see the victory that God provides us in his word. And so would you stand in honor of the wording, reading of the word Proverbs chapter 5, 
as we consider how to prioritize purity in an impure world. Proverbs 5 reads this way, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only yours own, your, let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords, cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, we're beginning a new series together that I've entitled Family Matters, as we take time to talk about what God's Word has to say about God's design on issues that relate to the Christian family, the Christian marriage, uh, Christian singles. We're going to talk about purity this morning, but in the weeks ahead, we'll discuss things like what Bi the Bible says about being single and satisfied, what the Bible has to say about subjects like financial stewardship, the power of the tongue in our relationships with one another. We're also going to discuss marriage and what God's, what God's word has to say about that. But this morning, as we get started in this series regarding family matters, I want to take some time to talk about how God instructs us to prioritize purity in his word. How is it possible to declare war on lust and to come, vic come victorious out on the other side? As we walk through our text, we're going to see three things together. The first thing is found in, in verses 1 to 2, and we see by means of paying attention to God's Word. We're invited to pay attention to God's Word. If you want to win the, the war against lust, if you want to prioritize purity and come out on top, if you are fully committed, pay close attention to the Word of God. Solomon writes this way, he says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. Now, Solomon is speaking to his son here. 
And so as we walk through our text, it may seem as if um, we're more focused on the men than the women, but as we take a look at the principles that apply, it can be applied to every single one of us. And certainly, when it comes to paying attention to what the Word of God has to say, that is relevant to every single one of us. But Solomon is writing to his son, His son, we don't know if he is married or unmarried. He's probably unmarried at this point. And Solomon is sitting down with him to have a conversation with him on the matter of pursuing purity, counting the cost of sexual immorality and honoring God's design for marriage. And as he takes time to sit down with his son, it's a reminder for us as parents that we need to pass on godly wisdom to the next generation. We are to talk about what God's word has to talk about. And as we have opportunity to talk about these things, if we don't, the culture will. And the culture already does. And so we need to talk about what God's word has to say on these matters. And so he begins by referring to his son. But this text is relevant to every one of us. And the content of the instruction is pay attention to my wisdom. When he says pay attention... He's not simply inviting the reader or his son to simply give him his undivided attention. He's inviting him to pay such a close attention that as he goes about his life and he's making decisions that the wisdom of his father would be constantly on his mind so that he walks in the instruction of the wisdom provided to him by his father. And as the readers, we're invited to pay close attention. To not just know what God's word has to say or understand how to apply God's word to our life, but to walk in the instruction that we have been given, especially on the subject of pursuing purity and prioritizing it in our lives. Pay attention to my wisdom. Now, as you read that, some may think, well, are we talking about God's wisdom? Are we talking about man's wisdom? And we know that Solomon's wisdom is from God. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And so as Solomon is writing the book of Proverbs, he's writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on this very matter. And so we're not just to pay attention to godly counsel. We as believers are to pay attention to God's word, to lean into the truth of what it says about all matters because God's word is the final authority on all matters to which it speaks In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Where does knowledge, where does understanding, where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. We're reminded in 1 Kings of how Solomon received his wisdom. And I'd like you to turn there, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 to 12. Really give us a description where this wisdom's coming from because I want you to know this is not the wisdom of man, it's the wisdom of God. Solomon doesn't share this with us simply because he's an intellectual or because of his experience, but because of the authority of God's word. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Can you imagine for a moment if you were Solomon, a young man or young woman, and God approached you and said, Whatever you want, you can have it. Perhaps you would ask for good health. Perhaps you would pray for wealth and, 
Perhaps you would pray for power and prestige. We get to see what Solomon asked for. Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a, given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. Verse 7, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a, a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. He asked for wisdom and understanding. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 10. This speech pleased the Lord, and Solomon asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because of you asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. Where did Solomon's wisdom come from? It came from God. And so when we hear the instruction provided in the Proverbs, especially on the subject of purity and pursuing it and find victor, finding victory over the war against lust, this is not just the advice of man. This is the counsel of God. And we are instructed in Scripture to follow Solomon's example. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives liberally, generously, and without reproach. My prayer is that you would model the heart of Solomon that we just read about where he recognized his desperate need for the wisdom of God. May you and I awake every morning Whatever God has called us to do, to be a husband or a wife, to be a parent, to be a, a grandparent, to be an influence in the life of our co-workers or those in our circle of influence, that we would seek the wisdom of God, not just to know the truth and know how to apply the truth to our lives, but know and be motivated to walk in the instruction of the Lord. May we be men and women who walk in wisdom, who know wisdom and understanding and apply it accordingly. And so Solomon, he is not speaking from his own wisdom. He's speaking from the wisdom of God. And so he says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. The instruction for us is pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to what the word of God has to say on all matters to which it speaks. And then he, in a synonymous phrase, states what he's already stated, lend your ear to my understanding. When we say understanding, we're talking about knowing how to apply God's word to our life. And so he's saying, lend your ear, pay attention, lean in. Now, for the reader, it's lending the ear, it's turning the ear. And that's how you know someone's paying close attention, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I get easily distracted. Even when I'm in my devotional time, even when I'm prepping a sermon sometimes, I get easily distracted. When I spend time with prayer, my mind can easily wander at times. And so I need to know how to give God my undivided attention. And I learn a lot about that in my relationship with my children. You know, 
before bed and sitting down with our kids and leading them in a devotional, they sometimes get distracted. And last night, they got a little bit more distracted than usual. They were poking each other, making jokes with each other, and I had to sit down with them and say, listen, uh, this is an important time. We're spending time with the Lord at the end of the day, and uh, we don't just want to pray. We want to hear what God has to say in his word, and so we want to give him our undivided attention. I knew I was going to be in this text this morning, and so I was thinking about, about um, Solomon inviting the reader to turn their ear to him, to hear the wisdom and to heed the understanding. And for them, I said, crisscross applesauce. That's how you give God your undivided attention. Cross your legs. Don't be putting your hands here and there. Give God your undivided attention as you cross your legs and listen carefully as we're going to sit down and pray. What's that for you? How do you need to give God your undivided attention? Is it giving God a time and a place and saying, God, at this time, I'm going to sit down with you. During, at this place, during this time, using this posture of prayer, this is what I need to do to give you my undivided attention. But not just in your devotional life on a Sunday morning. I mean, you know, we can all get distracted quite easily. And I'm reminded that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. And the time to prepare to worship the Lord is not when we necessarily come on Sunday morning, but we prepare our hearts Saturday night because, Lord, tomorrow I'm going to gather with your people and give you the worship that's due your name. I'm going to worship you in song, worship you in giving. And I'm going to worship you in the word, and I want to give you my undivided attention. What does that look like for you to say, God, you have my ear? I don't just want to know the truth. I want to know how to apply it. And I want to be motivated to walk in the instruction that you've provided me, especially when it comes to winning the war on lust, especially when it comes to pursuing purity in my life. Lend your ear to my understanding. Here's the motivation for paying attention to God's word, for giving him your undivided attention, to prioritizing the truth of God's word in your life that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. The term there, to have discretion, refers to having the ability to make an informed decision or a wise decision in response to the truth of God's word. The benefits of discretion are twofold. The first benefit of discretion is it gives you the ability to not just take into consideration the short-term consequences of your decisions, but the long-term consequences of your decisions as well. And so for those who have discretion preserved and have knowledge that is kept are those who know God's word so that when we're faced with a difficult decision or we're faced with temptation, we don't just take into consideration the temporary pleasures of sin, but we take into consideration the long-term consequences of sin. Moses is a good example of that described in Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What discretion gives you the ability to do is have the kind of discernment that allows you not to just take into consideration the temporary pleasures of sin, but the long-term consequences of it. And what's, what, what Moses did for him, it was 
He, was, he wasn't looking to enjoy those short-term benefits of continuing to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter and walk in the temporary pleasures of sin. He would rather have the favor of God over the favor of Pharaoh. He would rather enjoy the eternal treasures of heaven rather enjoy the temporary passing pleasures of sin. I don't know about you, but I want to make informed decisions. I want to have discretion in my life in such a way that I'm not just making decisions based on the here and now, but the here and after. I want to prioritize the eternal treasures of heaven over the temporal passing pleasures of sin. I don't want the favor of man. I would rather have the long-term favor of God. And like Moses who suffered temporarily the afflictions with the people of God would enjoy the eternal treasures of heaven. So discretion gives you the ability to be reminded and make decisions based on the short-term and long-term consequences of your decision. Secondly, discretion gives you the ability to discern between not just right and wrong, but right and almost right. This is where discretion comes in handy for us. If you're a single guy or gal and you're in a dating relationship, sometimes there are times where we ask, what's the line of purity? We might ask the question, okay, how far is too far? And you go one step further and you go one step further and you compromise, compromise, and eventually you find yourself going down the wrong path. And so what discretion gives you the discernment to do is tell the difference between right and almost right. And you draw the line and you say, we're not crossing that one. Because we're more interested in pleasing God and honoring God's design for marriage and enjoying the benefits that come with that rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin that may have long-term consequences. Discretion gives us the ability to discern between right and almost right. And so Solomon says this to his son. He says, I want you to pay attention to God's word. I want you to pay attention to godly wisdom so that you have discretion. When you're no longer in my house and you're out in the world and you're going about building a career and you're interacting with others and looking to date and to find a wife to marry, use discretion. Take into consideration the short term and the long term and be able to tell the difference between right and almost right. Don't go down the wrong path. We need discretion. He goes on to say in verse 2, and your lips may keep knowledge. So that you preserve discretion, that your lips keep knowledge. That means you don't only preserve discretion, but you speak the truth. Not just in regards to purity, but all things that are in regards to the word of God, because it's in your heart, because it's in your mind, because you're, 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 you're following God's design, you speak about it as God speaks about it, and you instruct others in light of the truth of God's word. And so first, how do you prioritize purity when the battle against lust, the war against lust, as you go all in, pay attention to God's word? If you're going to pay attention to God's word, you first have to hide the word of God in your heart. This is how you win. This is the truth of God's word. I want you to know, not just, I don't want you to just, just know the truth. This is what I'm supposed to do. Know how to apply the truth. I want to need to memorize the word, but that you would take 
sin so seriously and, and the struggle it is, the battle to overcome it and, and at times for some to, to just be caught in this habitual sin to say, that's it, I'm drawing the line. I'm going to exercise discretion. I'm going to keep knowledge and I'm going to live in accordance with the will of God and the word of God and if I need to memorize scripture, I'm going to do it. And we read about that in Psalm 119 verses 9 to 11. How can a man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I often encourage us, if you have a sin of choice, whatever it may be, one of the ways to win the battle is not just relying on the power of the Spirit, being informed of the truths of Scripture, but having what I call a PBR, a planned biblical response. If you're here today and you don't have a planned biblical response, there are some ways to go about that. You can open a concordance and find all the texts that deal with it, or you can write down these scriptures and memorize them. The first one is 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. There you see this, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. You were redeemed out of the slave market of sin. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In that moment of temptation, quote Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but, but God is faithful. How easy it is, it is it to believe the lie that I've lost the battle too many times and I don't think I can overcome it. And yet the scripture tells us that God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God provides you a way out. Don't trust your feelings or your experience. Trust the word of God. Job 31 verse 1 speaks of a covenant. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? In Romans 12, 1 through 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, um, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable in a perfect will of God. And the last one, Proverbs 6, 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. That's a few good scriptures to memorize. Don't just memorize one. I encourage you to memorize multiple ones, but have a planned biblical response for you. In that moment of need, in that moment of temptation, go back to the truth of God's word as you rely on the power of the Spirit to help you overcome the battle of sin within and walk in the purity that God has provided you. And so, how do you pay attention to God's word? By hiding the word of God in your heart. Secondly, by giving God your undivided attention at least one time a day. I don't think that's too much to ask, that you would give God your undivided attention at least one time a day. Five minutes, ten minutes, we easily find ourselves bringing up the excuse, I'm too busy. 
I've got this, I've got that. I, I can multitask, and it's okay to multitask. You can drive and pray, but there are times when you just need to lean into God and so prioritize your time with him because you love him and he loves you and you grow in your relationship with him where you say, God, this is the time, this is the place, this is the posture of prayer. You have my undivided attention, no excuses. I'm not going to bring my phone with me. I'm going to leave it outside. Give God at least one time during the day your undivided attention. And then lastly, instruct others in the truth of God's word. You know, one of the best ways to to pay attention to God's word is to teach it to others. If I could give you just a couple ways to do that, the first one is this, find someone to disciple. A disciple is simply a follower of Christ and who is pursuing to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. A fully devoted follower of Christ who, who denies themselves, takes up their cross and, and follows after him. What we're encouraged to do is not just be disciples, growing as fully devoted followers of Christ, but we're called to make disciples. And as we are poured into, that we pour in to someone else. Who has God set around you that he wants you to pour into? As someone is pouring into you, as you are, are, are reading the word in devotional time and receiving the truths of God's word, who has God called you to pour into? And can I tell you, that's how you stay focused on God's word. And as you disciple someone else, that's a blessing to you. For the parents in the room, I just want to remind you that God has called you to be the primary disciple maker in the life of your child. This is a reminder this morning that as the church, we have children's programs, we have youth programs, but as the church, we are called to come alongside of parents as they are the primary disciple maker in the lives of their children. And so I should be able to ask any parent in the room, who's on your list of those who you are discipling? And I pray you can list your children especially when they're in the home. That's the time period where you are the primary disciple maker in the life of that child. You pour in to that child. Talk to them about the gospel. It's your job to clarify what the good news of Jesus is all about. And so it's, so it's important to know who God gives you an opportunity to disciple. And secondly, I pray that you would lead by example as you instruct others. As you prioritize God in all things, as you prioritize the things of God that he's called you to prioritize, that is how you instruct others. If, you, if, if the word of God is not a priority in your life, what makes you think that you can instruct others to live in a way that you don't? We've been called to, to live by examples. We have opportunity to instruct and influence others. We should lead by examples and maintain those priorities. How, what, what should our priorities look like? Well, God should be first. We should give him our undivided attention at least sometime during the day. He, we should pray constantly. That's what it says in scripture. God should be our number one pursuit. But as God is number one, if you're married, we're reminded that your spouse is your number two. And you need to invest and in that relationship, the most important human relationship, if you're married after God, is your spouse. Invest in that relationship. And then after your spouse, if you have children, it's your children. You have other priorities as well with the church and serving. You have other priorities on your list as well. And, and so you need to lead by example. When it comes from a parent to a child, your, parent, your children see what your priorities are. I bring up my children every now and again, and I'm thinking of another example. At, at night sometimes, 
after we're doing a nightly routine, you know, the, the bedtime routine, parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about, children at the end of that bedtime routine will try to prolong it. You say, okay, we, we read the word together, we prayed together, I sang a song, that's it, go to bed. And they say, Daddy, one more thing. I need to go to the bathroom, I need a drink of water, can you sing another song? And it just can go on and on. And I have an opportunity to tell our kids, listen, right now I want you to know that I've spent my time with you, and now it's my time to go. And they say, Daddy, where are you going? And I say, I'm going to spend time with your mother. And they say, Daddy, why do you have to spend time with her? And I get to say, because I shepherd your heart, and now I get to shepherd my wife's heart and actually give her my undivided attention after a long day. And one of the best ways I can love you is by loving your mother well. And children, even at a young age, see those priorities in play, and we need to model that in our lives. And so first, pay attention to God's word. What does God's word have to say about winning the war against lust and pursuing purity? Uh, secondly, by means of counting the cost of sexual immorality. In verses 3 to 14, what Solomon does for his son is he lays out the consequences, the long-term consequences that come with sin. As we read into verse 3, we see first uh, Solomon, he, he, he warns his son about the deceptive nature of sexual immorality. Verse 3 says this, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Solomon tells his son that um, the lips of the immoral woman, the mouth of an immoral woman, it's, it's smooth, it's delightful, it's pleasurable in the moment, and no one said sin was not pleasurable, but in the end, it will lead to bitterness and it will lead to pain. It will lead down a path of destruction and ultimately death. When he speaks of the immoral woman, he's speaking of a woman who is not his, is, is not his son's wife. So for instance, this is, if Solomon is speaking to his son who is unmarried, this could be prior to marriage, this could be in marriage, and so whether um, um, it's before marriage or an extramarital affair, this is speaking of, of well, in essence, it's really capturing um, an, a representative of sexual immorality. If I could define sexual immorality for you, it would be seeking to meet a legitimate need through an illegitimate means. The reason I say that is because God created us with desire. And part of that desire is sexual desire, and he gave us sexual desire to be expressed within the context of his design in marriage between a man and a woman. And that legitimate desire is to be expressed in that context. But any deviation from God's original design is seeking to meet a legitimate need through an illegitimate means. What that basically means is to step outside of God's original design for marriage. What's God's design for marriage? We read about it in Genesis 2, verse 24. We read about it again in Matthew 19, where Jesus affirms it. Let me read those to you. Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's God's design for marriage. A husband and wife in a lifelong committed relationship. 
And then in Matthew 19, Jesus affirms it. And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? There's not gender fluidity when it comes to the truth of God's word. That's what culture may say. God's word clearly defines it. And goes on to say and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so sexual immorality is any deviation from God's original design for marriage. That's prior to marriage. That's outside of marriage. Any deviation from from God's definition of marriage between a man and a woman in a lifelong relationship and enjoying the benefits that come with it in that relationship is defined as sexual immorality when you leave that. And so we're reminded how temptation works. Sexual immorality can be deceiving. Her lips are sweet. They drip with honey. Her mouth is smooth. It's, it's, it's her, the way she speaks and flatters you. In the moment, it is desirable. It is delightful. But Solomon warns his son, it will lead to destruction and death. It will leave you bitter and it will leave you in pain. That's how sin works, doesn't it? Sin will promise you freedom, but it only brings bondage. It only brings suffering. It only brings pain. And you can entertain the desire for sin and enjoy it for a moment, but you've got to take into consideration the long-term consequences. You've got to use discretion informed by the truth of God's word that you hide in your heart. We get to hear about the destructive nature of the, of the deceiving sin in our lives in James 1, 14 to 15. It says this, and it's helpful to kind of know this if you find yourself deceived by Sin, But each one is tempted, James 1.14, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So God doesn't tempt us. We have a heart that is deceitful above all else. It will deceive us into thinking that stepping outside of God's boundaries and God's will and justifying our sin is more desirable uh, than living according to God's will. And it says, as each one is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when the desires has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. The, the term that speaks of being enticed or deception is speaking of a fish who is deceived into biting the bait. And what sin will do to you is it will lie to you and invite you to consider the bait but overlook the hook. To enjoy the temporary pleasure of the moment while overlooking the long-term consequences of the sin. And like a fish who bites the bait and even when it feels the pain of the hook will not let go because it longs for the object of its desire, so are we in our own sin. Sexual immorality is Deceiving, yes, it may bring temporary pleasure, but when you consider the long-term consequences, it is bitter, it is painful, it is destructive. And so first, we see the warning. Count the cost, because sexual immorality is deceiving. Don't think you're beyond it. Consider our heart, which is deceiving. And then he, he talks about the, the cost that it brings. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Oh, yeah, her, her lips drip with honey at first. Yes, her mouth is smooth, but in the end, it's bitter and sharp as a two-edged sword. It will leave you in pain. It goes on to say that her path leads to death. 
Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell or Sheol. Lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable. You do not know them. And so when it's talking about her unstable path, it's speaking of her crooked path that she'll take take you with her on. It's a reminder that whenever you step outside of God's boundaries that he has set, you end up stepping outside of his blessing. And you invite on yourself the burden of the consequences that come with your sin in your life. And what we're told here is that a crooked path will not lead to blessing, it will lead to burden. You will not find happiness, you will find bitterness, and you will find pain along that path. It's a reminder that sexual intimacy, since it's created by God, is like a fire. That if it's placed in, its, in the context of a fireplace, boy, can that enrich a marriage because it, it warms the whole room. But if you take that fire, you take sexual intimacy outside of the context of marriage, it will burn that house down. It is destructive in nature. And this is the crooked path that it leads to. Verse 7 Solomon goes on to say that it leads down a path of rebellion and so he calls upon his son to hear him, to heed his warning and to consider how dangerous this really is. He says this, therefore hear me now my children and do not depart from the words of my mouth. How close do his children need to pay attention to his word which is really the word of God here. They need to keep it on their mind at all times. So that when the temptation arises, the word of God is on their mind and they use the discretion to walk the right path and not the wrong one. Verse 8, remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. She is so dangerous. Sexual immorality is so dangerous. You don't even need to give yourself an opportunity to sin. If sexual immorality lurks down this particular road, go down another one. If you have a cell phone that leads you astray, Get rid of it. You say, well, people need to call me and I've got business to take care of. Well, is it really worth the destruction and the death that it will ultimately bring? We are to take our sin seriously. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel ones. You lose your health, that's what it's speaking of, your vitality. It'll take your wealth, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your laborers go to the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And say, I have hated instruction and my heart is despised. So it leads down a path of bitterness. It leads down a path of pain. It leads down a path of destruction. It leads down a path of death. And it leads to a path of regret. I want you to hear closely what is being said here. Solomon is warning his son. I don't want you to get to this point. Well, hopefully even if you get to this point, you can finally move forward and say, it's not too late to change. David's a good example of that. And it says in... In verse 12, and say how I have hated instruction in my heart despised correction. It's not that you did not know the truth. It's not that you didn't know how to apply the truth. We just gave you a PBR, right? Memorize the scripture. It's that you were unwilling to live out the truth. Don't be a fool. Don't walk in foolish activities. Knowing the truth and knowing how to apply the truth, don't leave here continuing to do what you, know, what you know is wrong. That's the definition of foolishness. 
It goes on to say, I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who had instructed me. You see the regret and the disappointment. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Well, if that is the state that he's in at that moment, at least there's still time to turn back because by the time we get to the end of Proverbs, it says he shall die for lack of instruction. If you have walked down the path in which you have been not pursuing and prioritizing purity and you have not been winning the war against lust, the time to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord and deal with your sin at the cross is now. Don't get to the point of verse 23 where it says he shall die for lack of instruction and the greatness of his folly shall go astray. What we are instructed to do is count the cost of sexual immorality. Take into consideration not just the short-term, but the long-term consequences. Yes, the lips are sweet and they drip with honey. Yes, her mouth is smooth with the words that she speaks and the flattery that she brings, but ultimately it will lead destruction and it will rob you of any joy in this world. Count the cost. How do you count the cost? What does that look like practically? Number one, know your heart. Know your heart. I pray that as you hear these consequences, you wouldn't say, well, thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I would never be tempted like that. Well, that's the thing about, about deception. Deception means that, that you are fooled into listening to your heart over the word and the God and the will of God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Don't listen to your heart like the culture tells you. It will lie to you. It will deceive you. It will lead you down to a path that leads to destruction and death. It's desperately wicked who can know it. When I think of the state of the human heart, I always think of a, a quote from Malcolm Muggridge. Uh, one of the most powerful stories heard on the nature of the human heart is told by Malcolm Muggridge, working as a journalist in India. He left his residence one evening going to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from a nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment and temptation stormed his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman, the object of his desire, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him with the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now, as he was just two or three feet away from her, as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled in significance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. And in his own words, he says this, she was old and hideous. Her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. He says this, the creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggridge trembling and muttering under his breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock dawned on him. What was ugly and lecherous was not this woman, it was his own heart. Don't be deceived, your heart can lead you astray. Know your heart. 
Know those things that can trip you up. And as you get to know your heart, walk the path of purity and don't travel down the road that leads to destruction and ultimately to death. Secondly, we're encouraged to deal with sexual immorality by fleeing from it. Run from it. Joseph is a good example of that. In 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, Flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. As you flee from lust, you run to righteousness, a right standing before God. You run to faith, you run to love and peace. And so it's not that you have nothing there, it's that you pursue a right standing in relationship to the Lord. And that is satisfying, that's fulfilling Genesis 39, you read about um, Joseph's uh, interaction with it, and it says here, but it happened at this time, and we know he was in Potiphar's household serving him, and Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph, and after numerous attempts to have her come to her him come to her bed, he refused. And finally, it says in verse 11 of chapter 39 of Genesis, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. If you read further into the story, you learn that it seems as if Joseph is punished for doing the right thing, but God would ultimately redeem that in his due time. When sexual immorality presents itself, flee from sexual immorality. And then thirdly this morning, check the destination before you buy the ticket. When it comes to sexual immorality, check the destination before you buy the ticket. Count the cost of sin. It will only lead down the path of pain, destruction, and ultimately death. The time to turn from your sin and turn to Christ is now. And so count the cost of sexual immorality. And lastly, this morning, honor God's design for marriage. As you pay attention to God's word, as you hide the word of God in your heart, you can find victory. As you go about counting the cost of sexual immorality and the path that it will take you on, you can find victory. As you flee sexual immorality, as, as, as you pursue the truths of God's word and right standing before him, but also as you honor God's design. Verse 15 of chapter 5 goes on to read, Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. How are we to honor God's design for marriage? First, by enjoying God's design for marriage, which is exclusive. Verse 16 says, Should your fountains be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. What Solomon is doing for his son is describing God's design for marriage where sexual intimacy can be enjoyed. And what Solomon is telling his son is he's say, saying that, his wife, that the wife of his son or the wife who will, or the wife who will, or soon to be wife of his son um, is described in three ways as a cistern who collects water, a human receptacle that carries and collects water in it is described as a well, is described as a fountain. And the reason he describes his wife this way is, is because he's saying that this wife is more than capable of satisfying the desires of her husband and is more than 
more than qualified of quenching his thirst. When it comes to sexual desire within the context of marriage, God is the one who created it. It's not an ugly thing, it's a good thing, and it's to be expressed in a committed relationship with a husband and wife, and it's described as exclusive in this manner. And so the husband is told here, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. He goes on to ask him, he says in verse 16, should your fountains be dispersed abroad? In other words, if your wife is more than capable of satisfying your desires and quenching your thirst, why would you look elsewhere? Why would you allow that water to seep into the streets and that which was once satisfying is now poisonous because the water is not from a fountain, the water is now a sewer. And what that water will do is it will poison your soul and it will lead ultimately to destruction and death. And so the question is, should your fountains be dispersed from abroad? And so this morning, if you are struggling in the area of purity, the next time you face a temptation, don't just have a PBR, a planned biblical response of some of the scriptures. Add this one there and ask yourself, should your fountains be dispersed abroad? Should you drink the poison that's there, that will ultimately kill you, streams of water in the streets. No, let them be your own and not for strangers with you. Solomon is telling his son, if he's not married, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait to honor God's design for marriage and find satisfaction as God designed it. Don't seek it outside of it because stolen waters, although they may deceive you as being sweet, they will end up being bitter and they will cause you to go down a path of destruction and death. And so he says first, enjoy the, enjoy the design that God has for marriage by means of enjoying the exclusive design, but secondly, enjoying God's satisfying design. It goes on to say in verse 18, let your fountain be blessed. Let your fountain be blessed. We're reminded here, if you've forgotten, that marriage is supposed to be a blessing, not a burden. Marriage is to be something that you enjoy. When God said to Adam, it's not good that man should be alone, he was saying it's not appropriate and fitting within his plan and purpose for creation for Adam to be alone in that moment. And so he brought to him a wife who would do all that God had intended him to do for creation. Now, now today, not everybody is called to be married. And if you have the gift of singlehood, you can honor God in that. But if you've been called to be married, we're reminded that, that marriage is to see, be seen as a blessing and not a burden, that you would enjoy it that you would enjoy the blessing that God provides in it. And so if you feel a little bit burdened by your spouse, ask God to begin to change your heart. Ask God to begin to help you see his design for marriage from his perspective, to go back to texts like Ephesians 5, to 33, to be reminded that marriage really points us back to the gospel and reminds us of Christ's love for his church as he died for her, sanctified her, and will present her to himself holy and blameless. Be reminded of, of marriage according to his design. Let your fountain be blessed. I pray that your marriages would be blessed. On a regular occasion in prayer meetings and when we meet together as leaders of the church or elders of the church, often on, in our prayers are the marriages of the church. That the marriages of the church would be blessed. That they would follow the design of God 
that he has set for them, that they would not depart from his design, but that they would be blessed. It says, let your fountain be blessed. And then it says, marriage is supposed to be a place where rejoicing takes place and, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. It doesn't say rejoice when your wife is young. It says rejoice with the wife of your youth. Marriage is a blessing in the different seasons of life as you get to know your spouse in those new seasons. And I pray that you can rejoice with the wife of your youth. That you would find satisfaction and joy and delight instead of entering into the streets and drinking the poison of the waters of the sewers that are there. Find joy in your marriage. And then verse 19, Solomon goes into a little bit more detail here. And as I read this, I want you to know that sexual intimacy and sexual desire is God's design. When it's expressed in the context of marriage, it's not an ugly thing it's a beautiful thing, and that's how Solomon presents it here. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Yeah, that's in Scripture. You say, what's this rated? It's rated B for Bible. <laughs> and what we need is to see God's design, and we need to see it from his perspective and we need to honor it. We need to exercise discretion and we need to pass the truth of God's word on to the next generation and talk about the beauty that God paints it in. Verse 20, he finishes up and says, find satisfaction with your wife. So why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? The word enraptured there is intoxicated. Why should you be intoxicated by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? What a waste. What a poison. It just leads down to more pain and more bitterness and more destruction. 21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all the past. His own iniquities entrap the wicked and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction in the greatness of of his folly, he shall go astray. Honor God's design for marriage. If you're single here this morning and God has called you to be married, I pray that you would honor God's design for marriage. As you honor God's design for marriage, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait as you wait on the Lord to provide you the husband or wife that he has prepared for you and allow God to go about that in his time. Uh, and then I'd like to give two applications, one to our husbands and others to our wives. First, to our husbands, I'd like to encourage us this morning that, that to be reminded that, that your wife is the only legitimate form of romance in your life. Your wife is the only legitimate form of romance in your life. And so can I encourage you to treat her like that? to pursue her and love her, to care for her, to shepherd her heart. Like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says that you would dwell with her in an understanding way. What that means to dwell with her in an understanding way means that you should have a PhD in your wife. You need to get to know her, her likes, her dislikes, the, the way she goes. You don't need to get to know any other woman like you get to know your wife. Get to know her and you say, well, I'm still learning. I've been married to her for 20, 30, 40 years and, and listen, I don't know about her enough as I thought I did. Well, guess how you get to know her more? Spend time with her. 
continue to pursue her. Continue to ask her questions. Continue to get to know what her likes and dislikes are. Continue to love her and then love her unconditionally. I want to remind you that your love for your wife is not based on her love for you. Your love for your wife is based on God's love for you. And we're reminded and we can admit, men and women alike in this room, we are imperfect and we sin against one another and there are offenses that have been committed against one another. But even when our spouse disappoints us, we're reminded our God doesn't and the way that he loves us is the way that we should love them. And so husbands, love your wives unconditionally, pursue them and care for them and I pray that you would be a blessing and not a burden to your wife. Can I ask you this question to consider this on your way home? How can you be less of a burden to your wife? That's the first part of the question. Secondly, how can you be a greater blessing to your wife? One thing you can do. One thing you can do to help your wife in that manner. Secondly, to the wives. Wives, you are the only legitimate form of romance in the life of your husband. <laughs> Husbands, Give your wife your fidelity. Wives, give your husbands your fidelity and your commitment to love them and to cherish them alone. Secondly, love them unconditionally. As I said to the husbands, wives, your love for your husband is not dependent on his love for you or lack thereof. It's dependent on God's love for you. And isn't it interesting how love overlooks a multitude of sins? We're reminded in scriptures like Matthew 18, that the way that God loves us with an unconditional love is forgiving us a debt that we could never repay. And how much more should we as spouses overlook the debts of others? Because if God has forgiven us billions or trillions of dollars and those who might be our spouse make commit an offense against us that may be in the amount of $5,000, how much more can we love them unconditionally with the love that God has shown us? And then to the wives, I ask you to do the same thing as the husband. How can you be a greater blessing to your husband? Is there one way that you can do that? And how can you be less of a burden to your husband if there one way that you can do that? And that'll be a good conversation on your way home. This morning, let me conclude with this. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Christ loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sins, bought us out of the slave market of sin in order that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. When we talk about pursuing purity, the reason we want to do that is to reflect well on the gospel. We don't want to give people a reason not to believe the truth of the gospel. We want to attract them to the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom, and we as the church are the bride who have been redeemed. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, today is the day of salvation. If you want to be the best husband or the best wife that you could ever be, it begins with a personal relationship with Jesus. Can we take some time to pray? Father, we're grateful this morning for the truth of your word. We're thankful, Lord, for how straightforward Solomon spoke to his son through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is so relevant to the day and age that we live in. 
I pray, Father, for every man or woman in the room here today, that, Lord, that we would go all in, that we would be fully committed to pursuing purity for the sake of Christ and a right standing before him, for the sake of the gospel, that we would not reflect negatively on the gospel that we get to share with others, but that we would attract them to the beauty of Jesus as we live a life set apart to you. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who wants to be a better husband or wants to be a better wife or, or just needs a personal relationship with Jesus and they don't have one. I pray that they can express this in their hearts or out loud as I pray it. Father, I recognize my need for you. I know that there's something that separates me from you and it's called sin. But I know that's why Jesus came from heaven to earth. He went to die on a cross to take my place to forgive my sins. Three days later, he rose in newness of life and he offers me the forgiveness of sins because of that. I receive that forgiveness. I make Jesus Lord of my life, the king of my life, the one I'm gonna follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, I pray for every marriage in the room that it would be a greater blessing, not a burden, that we would rejoice with the spouse that you have provided and for those who are waiting to be married someday that you would bless them as well and just provide everything that they need knowing that you are all that we need. Father, we thank you for these things. We give you all praise, honor, and glory for them and ask it in Jesus' name, amen.